Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you to join me, if you will, in the Holy Scriptures in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. I want to continue some thoughts that we tried to develop last week as we speak today on the Master's plan for the church. And I want to read from this chapter beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. The apostle in this passage talks about the ascension of Christ who when he ascended led captivity captive. That's interesting language. It speaks of a Roman triumph parade in which a conquering military general returns home from the battle and parades the enemy, humiliates the enemy in the presence of the public. It's like a ticker tape parade. He speaks of the ascension of Christ in triumphant terms, and he says he gave gifts unto men. He distributed gifts. And perhaps you're familiar with parades in the modern world in which those that ride upon the floats or in the back of a convertible throw bubble gum or candy or some gift to the public. That's the idea. When Jesus went back to heaven, it was like a victory parade, and he distributed gifts unto men, beginning in verse 11. And he gave some apostles, these are his gifts, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. For the past few weeks, I've been preaching about what I call some of the mechanical details of discipleship. This is a little out of the norm of my regular pulpit fare. I love to focus on the gospel message itself, Christ and Him crucified, the person, the work of Christ, the character of God. But we've been talking more about some of the nuts and bolts of Christian discipleship in the last few weeks. We've talked about the fundamental role that the truth or God's Word plays in a person's spiritual growth and development. And last time we talked about the nature of the church. What is the church supposed to be? What did the Lord intend for it to be in the lives of His people? You've probably seen a Science Channel production series called How It's Made. 
Sometimes it's on the Discovery Channel, sometimes on the National Geographic Channel or one of these other uh, more educational channels, how it's made. And they will go through the whole process of how bubblegum is made. You know, they'll show the start-to-finish product, the machines and the factories and how it's finally packaged and then shipped out to the particular distribution centers or retail outlets or lipstick. They had a whole program devoted to how lipstick was made. Or ice cream sandwiches or tissues or pencils or skateboard wheels or lever action rifles and many, many more. Now, I imagine that most consumers seldom think about the mechanical details about how a tube of lipstick was made. You ladies just want it to work properly when you apply it to your lips. And very few of us think about how a piece of bubble gum was made when we open it. We just want it to work right. We want it to taste correctly and to actually blow a bubble when we try to blow a bubble. And I suspect that the average person in the pew doesn't ordinarily give too much thought to the nuts and bolts of how a church is supposed to function. We just want it to be there. We want it to work right. We want to be fed. We want to be encouraged. We want to be instructed. But when it comes to the details, the mechanical or clinical details of how it works, most of us would say, I don't think about that very often. But I suggest in a day like ours, when there is so much confusion about the biblical model of the church, that is, in some cases, the church is seen to be a, a social club, you know, that our goal is to mainly take care of the problems in society, to promote social reform. And in other cases, where it's seen as a political action committee, and perhaps in some cases where it's seen as an entertainment center, in which our goal is to try to take the talents that we see around us in popular culture and to Christianize those so that people actually are met where they live. I suggest there's a lot of confusion today about the biblical model of the church. And passages like this one that I've read in your hearing this morning from the Ephesian epistle call upon us to rediscover the architect's original blueprint or if you please, the master's plan for the church. Ephesians answers this question of how a church is supposed to function by giving us a three-dimensional model of church life. First, there's an upward dimension. That is, the church exists as a worshiping community. Then there is an inward dimension. The church exists as a pastoral community for God's children. And then there's an outward dimension. The church exists as an evangelistic community. And that will be our outline as we look at this passage from Ephesians 4 and then go back as well into chapter 3 to look at some passages as well. In fact, let's go back now to the previous chapter. If your Bible's open to Ephesians 4, you may be able to see on the opposite page Ephesians 3.21. And here we learn the upward dimension of the church. This is the master's plan. Now I'm more interested in that than I am some self-proclaimed expert's plan for what the church is supposed to be. I'm more interested in what God says. He's the one who came up with the idea of the church. He invented it. It's his house 
And let's see what he has to say. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Unto God, the God who loved us, the God to whom we pray. In fact, this is a prayer in Ephesians 3 at the end of the chapter where Paul is praying to God on behalf of the church. And he says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I suggest that the church exists first and foremost to glorify God. It is a worshiping community. Now, what should we be interested in when we come here on Sunday mornings? Somebody says, well, I'm interested in socializing. I want to see people. And that's certainly a part of church life. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first and foremost, the primary goal of the church is to glorify God. Unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages world without end. Notice the apostle knows nothing about a church that once existed that ceases to exist and needs to be reformed or rediscovered. This is a church, he says, that has been around throughout all ages, and it will be around throughout all ages. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And I love that expression, world without end. It suggests to us that what we're doing here this morning will continue once we get to heaven. And may I say that it'll even be more glorious. We'll do it better over yonder. Now, whether you and I ever get anything else out of the church or not, if you have accomplished this purpose to worship and to glorify God when you come to the house of God on Lord's Day morning, I dare say that is the primary and ultimate purpose of church life. The church exists to glorify God. Unto him be glory in the church. We're here for him. You know, many people ask the question, what can I get out of the church? And I always like to say, well, there is something to get. But the first question is, what can you give to the church? You remember John F. Kennedy's famous quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And my beloved, we're here this morning because we need to be here. Because we need to think about God. I wonder how many of us have had him uppermost in our minds as we've gone about the 101 activities of the past week. I know that it's a struggle for me to keep my focus on the Lord. There are so many distractions. You say, Brother Mike, you ought to see my daytimer, my calendar. I have so many things to do that I really don't have time to read my Bible or to pray or to even think about religious things. May I say many people have developed this approach to life in which God is one of the many items on our to-do list. You say, well, at least I put him first, so he's got the priority, and that's better than putting him last, of course. But may I say that in a very real sense, all of life is to be lived to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 says, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. So all of life is a sacred act of worship and giving glory to God. It should be for the Christian. That means that he is Lord of our families. He's Lord of our entertainment. He's Lord of our attitudes. He's Lord of the way we spend money. He's Lord of our faith. And he's Lord of our life, of our conduct and behavior. I suggest, dear friends, that that is the more biblical model. But you see, the church exists to glorify God. I would ask you as you think about the things that have happened in popular culture in the past week, 
You've probably watched the news from time to time, which may not be as healthy a habit as it once was, and uh, you're aware of the mood and the movements in popular culture. I would ask you, do you see many people giving glory to God in this world around us? That's not the priority I would suggest in many places. Hollywood certainly not invested in honoring and praising God. Capitol Hill isn't interested in worshiping and praising God. Madison Avenue certainly is not thinking about promoting godliness in their advertisement. I suggest, my friends, that if the church ceases to function as a worshiping community, a place where God is on display, a place where he is central, a place where his word is proclaimed, not personal opinions that are egocentrically projected onto others that, well, people need to know what I think about something. I'm an expert, and I'm going to give a TED Talk on how people ought to raise their children or conduct their marriages because I've got it figured out. That's not what we're doing here. You know what we're doing here this morning, my friends? We're opening the Word of God and reading from what He says, and we're singing songs about His wonderful works in history. You know, uh, there's a hymn that we sing sometimes that says, Let not the wonders that he has wrought be lost in silence and forgot. And the hymn writer probably was thinking about that verse in Psalm 111, I think it's verse 3 or 4, which says, He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. What if the church went out of business? Do you think many people would remember the wonderful works of God? My beloved, the church is his creation, his body. And it exists primarily for the head, for the sake of the head. Now, what I'm saying here is that worship and adoration is the primary purpose of the church. And if you've worshiped when you come here, if you've given glory to God, you say, well, I didn't get anything. But if you've given him praise, then my beloved, your time is not wasted in the house of God because he deserves our best esteem. Now, the fact is, if you come with that intent, with that goal in mind, then I dare say you will get something. There will be a benefit to you if you come with the right attitude. But you see, first and foremost, the purpose of the church is to worship and adore our Lord. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen generation, a holy priesthood, a peculiar people to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's the purpose of the people of God, the church of God? To show forth the praises of the one who did so much for us. He called us out of darkness. The darkness of sin, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of being so self-absorbed. He called us out of that darkness, out of the dark little dungeons of our own ego. He called us and liberated us and brought us into his marvelous light, and therefore may his name be glorified. That's the purpose of the New Testament church. In other words, what I'm saying is the church does not exist to showcase individual talents or giftedness. Somebody says, well, we've got somebody that's really talented, and, and my everybody, let's applaud this person. You know, you don't see a lot of applause going on in old Baptist churches, and that's probably a good thing. And um, I don't think it'd be inappropriate, you know, at certain occasions, but um, I'm glad that when I make a good point, everybody doesn't applaud. Now, 
Well, I think I'll rethink that. I'd rather that folks applaud than go to sleep when I make a good point. But anyway, the point is that we're not here to say, man, what a great preacher, what a great song leader, what a great public prayer, what handsome people, what beautiful ladies, what well-behaved children. The goal, my friends, is to focus on God. And if you leave here again with the sense that he is real, that you've had an encounter with him, that is the upward dimension of the church. The church is a worshiping community first and foremost. Psalm 65, 1 says, Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. I love that. So as the lights have been turned on and the doors are open and the people begin to file in, why are we coming? Because praise waits for God in Zion. Praise is waiting for you, O God, in Zion says the psalmist, and he says, Blessed is the man whom thou hast chosen and caused to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy house. You know, it's divine grace that has marked us out. It's sovereign election that has distinguished us as God's people. God has done a work in our life. Blessed is the man whom thou hast chosen and caused to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy house. Yes, my friends, when God's people who've been tendered by divine grace in their hearts, gather together in Zion, in the house of the living God. It is to praise and worship our God. I love that verse in Hebrews 2.12 when Jesus says, I have declared thy name unto my brethren, and in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. I was preaching one time and mentioned that verse, and a sister came up to me after the service, and she said, Brother Goins, there's something about that verse that caught my attention for the first time ever when you mentioned it in your sermon today. I've noticed over the years that sometimes the singing in the church service is better than it is at other times. Sometimes it's just glorious. I feel like another step and we could just step over the threshold into heaven itself. That's how uplifting and encouraging and spirit-filled it is. And she said, I've always wondered why sometimes we struggle and sometimes it's glorious. And she said, I think I got my answer this morning in that verse where Jesus says, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. We have a special guest. We have an extra voice in the congregation on those occasions. And it's the Lord himself singing with the church praise to God. You know, I preached recently when we went through the book of Hebrews in the 12th chapter on the nexus or the connection between public worship in the church and what's going on in heaven right now. And I said that worship with the church is a taste of heaven. That when we are in Mount Zion, we have come to the city of the living God, a heavenly, the heavenly Jerusalem. There are angels hovering all around us. There's more going on here than appears on the surface. And I made the comment that if you ever really get a grasp and believe that passage, it will revolutionize the way you think about Sunday morning worship. It is a life-changing kind of thought. My friends, may I say, when the church gathers, there is something heavenly going on. In other words, the church exists first and foremost for him, not for the poor. You know, in the early 20th century, the social gospel movement began. It was promoted in the aftermath of the Civil War with the idea that the church should try to 
reform society and ease much of the suffering that we see, the economic deprivation, the poverty, the uh, hunger, the lack of housing, that the church and the gospel, instead of focusing on what Christ has done, became what we should do. It's called the social gospel. And even though it's largely, you know, tuckered out in its influence and the movement is not known in those terms anymore, I suggest the idea is still around that the primary goal of the church is social action. You know, soup kitchens and, you know, gathering goods for the poor and the needy. Now, all of that is appropriate. All of that should be part of our Christian orientation. We should care about physical suffering, human poverty, and we should do what we can. I suggest to try to help the poor, the little children of prisoners, especially at holidays, and we should be concerned with helping those who are underprivileged in many respects. But may I suggest, dear friends, that the ultimate purpose of the church is to worship the Lord Jesus, not to try to change the world around us. If our goal is to change the world, how well are we doing at it? <laughs> not very well. The world's getting worse and worse, isn't it? I mean, Christianity's been around for 2,000 years. Now, I dare say that there are many institutions in place today that can be directly traced to the influence of Christ and his gospel in the world. Did you know that hospitals came about as a result of the influence of Christianity? And so did nursing homes and the care for the elderly and orphanages. And it was Christian people, people with a biblical worldview who stood against abortion, uh, which was a common practice back in the ancient Roman Empire. In fact, you know, infanticide was practiced regularly. Many fathers, if a child was born female, would cast the child outside on a, on a, just on a pile of rocks and leave them to bake in the sun and to be eaten by scavengers. And it was a cruel world, my friends, and Christians said that that's not right. Christians brought a moral conscience to society. So there have been many benefits of the influence of the gospel of Christ in Western culture over the past 2,000 years. Most of the institutions that we see today that are geared toward mercy and compassion toward the suffering have their roots in Christian circles and Christian influence. But at the same time, my beloved, the poor we have always with us. But Jesus, we have not always. Do you remember that story in John chapter 12 when Jesus was in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Now, this is after he raised Lazarus back to the dead. And perhaps they invited him the next Friday evening for a meal. So he shows up at their house. And it says Mary had a box of ointment, a pound of spikenard, very costly, very precious. And she took this, what I think of as probably a little jewelry box, you know, a decorative container. She took it that was full of this perfume and she broke it. She broke the box and she poured it upon the feet of Jesus. And then she took her own hair and began to dry his feet with her hair. Well, Judas Iscariot, who was the treasurer for the group, he held the bag, it says, spoke up and said, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? That is, we could have sold it and used the money to help the poor. And I love the editorial comment in John 12. This he said not because he 
cared for the poor, <laughs> but because he held the bag <laughs> and uh, kept that which was therein. That is, uh, the implication is that he was extorting some of the funds for his own benefit, so he was not being honest, and he was a covetous man. You remember, this is the same fellow that actually betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. So he's looking to make a little profit, and he says, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? The intimate display of Mary of Bethany on Jesus, with this ointment pouring it on his feet, then that is uncomfortable for Judas Iscariot. And Jesus responds, leave her alone. I love that. Against the day of my burying hath she done this. Watch this. For the poor you have always with you, but me you have not always. Now the idea is there will always be opportunities to help the underprivileged because they'll be here until kingdom come. But my friends, we don't always have the opportunity to honor and glorify Christ. And the church needs to keep their priorities in order in that respect that our first and foremost privilege <laughs> And function on Lord's Day morning is an upward dimension of playing for an audience of one. I love Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he says to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Did you notice that expression? Study to show thyself approved unto God. It's God that you're playing for, Timothy. It's God that you're performing for. We're not performing so that the public will think we're smart or talented or attractive. We're not performing so that people will approve of us. We're performing for God. You know, when I preach, of course, I don't, I'd rather people like what I'm saying and approve of my message than to throw rotten fruit at me. Well, I think that's sometimes why we have this obstacle between me and the congregation. So if they throw things at me, I can duck. But um, I'd much rather people approve. I'd much rather people say, I really enjoyed your sermon, than to say, that was the poorest excuse for a homily I've ever heard. But ultimately, you know, what I'm doing here, I'm making my offering to God. You say, well, it's a poor offering, preacher. Well, it may be. But uh, this is my attempt to show my gratitude for what he's done for me by trying to proclaim his glories and his truth to his people, and I say, Lord, please accept the few crumbs that fall from this pulpit. Please accept them because they are intended to be a love offering, a gratitude offering to you, a thanksgiving offering for all that you've done for me. What a blessing it is to try to serve my Lord who loved me and gave himself for me by proclaiming his word and his glorious gospel. Paul says, Timothy, you study so that God will approve of you. Study to show yourself approved unto God. There's a little expression in the Pauline epistles several times in which it's the expression in his sight. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he says that he thanked God for the Thessalonian church, for their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope in the sight of God and our Father. In the sight of God. He told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but in the sight of God speak we in Christ. And what he's saying there is that when I preach, I know that God is standing over my shoulder watching to make sure that I don't mishandle his word. You know, if a preacher could have that uppermost in his mind and realize how serious it is that God is observing me, 
that we live all of life before the divine gaze, not just preachers, but people alike. Did you know God is always watching? And oh, that he would be pleased with me. You know, if the rest of the world rejects you and hates you, but God smiles upon you and approves of you, my beloved, your life is worth living. If you can have a clear conscience and the approbation of God, you can afford to be indifferent to the opinions of men, whether they commend or condemn. And if you can't reach that point, you're a babe and not a man. Indeed, my friends, the church exists to glorify God to showcase the Lord Jesus Christ, to remind people of him, to remember his wonderful works, and to provide an opportunity for people to encounter him. Our motto is Psalm 115, verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Secondly, there's an inward dimension. Now, that's the upward dimension, a worshiping community. But secondly, the church not only exists for him and to praise and to worship him, but it exists, my friends, for God's little children in this world as a home away from home. The church exists for the mutual edification of believers. And that's what we just read at the beginning of our message in Ephesians 4. Notice he says it's for the perfecting of the saints. We have pastors and teachers, evangelists. We have these gifts related to the ministry of the word for the perfecting of the saints. That's you. And the word perfecting means maturation. For growing Christians. Now, do you know what a home is for? A home is for the growth and development of the children. You're growing people in that home. And may I say, that's the most important crop you will ever raise, that crop of little ones. You're making people. You've got little ones that God has blessed you with, and the, the challenge before parents, mothers, and fathers is to take those little ones and to shape and to protect them and to help them develop intellectually, socially, physically, and spiritually. Have you ever noticed Luke 2.52, speaking of the boy Jesus and the only snapshot of his adolescent life? It's, you know, you have his birth and then you have him starting his ministry at age 30. And there's very little told to us about his life except two things. I said the only. There are two occasions. When he was 12 years old, we have a picture of him being left by his mom and dad in Jerusalem. And notice they journeyed one day away and it took them three days to find him. One day away, and then somebody said, where's Jesus? Well, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. Well, maybe he's back there. He's nowhere to be found. Can you imagine the panic that they must have felt? One day away, it took them three days to find him. It'll always take three times as long to get back to where you left than it did to get away from that point. You know, we were in Texas for 28 days when my dad was so ill and finally passed. And I told folks when we got home, I said, it, it always takes three times as long. We were gone for almost a month. It'll take three months <laughs> to get back to where I was when I left. And we're still trying to dig out from underneath the rubble, but I think, we're, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I just hope it's not an approaching locomotive. But uh, anyway, that's one episode. Jesus was left in Jerusalem. The other one is it says the child grew and waxed strong in spirit 
and in body and in favor with God and with men. Four areas. He grew physically. He grew up in his body. Parents are responsible for monitoring and promoting the physical development of their children. That means, parents, it's your role to feed those kids <laughs> and to make sure that they are medically taken care of, physically protected, and that they have clothes and so forth. That's the challenge. Physically, that's part of it. God does not reject the physical needs of his people. And it says, grew in body and in spirit, so psychologically. Children must develop psychologically. And we want children to grow up to be stable, mentally stable, to be mentally tough, not to be, you know, wimpy and the, the least little thing to harm them. Now, people are temperamentally, they have different personalities. We understand that. But you see, parents want to try to tailor their approach in child rearing to help that child grow healthy in a psychological way, spiritually. We want them to learn how to deal with setbacks and disappointments. It's good for a little boy to stand at the plate and let a 45-mile-per-hour fastball in Little League pass within a few inches of his hands and his head. That's good. The stress is good, you know, measured stress. A wise parent, in order to develop healthy psychological children, will measure the stress that a child is put under. And then socially, in favor with man. Jesus grew socially. Social development. It's important, my friends, to help children learn how to make friends, how to interact with others, and then spiritually in favor with God. Well, may I say the same is true for the children of God. The church is here to help God's little children grow up. And where is a safer place for children to grow up than the safety of a loving and godly home. You say, well, our kids are going to grow up. We're going to drop them off at this facility, and then they're going to go to the public institution, and they'll spend maybe two hours with us, but the rest of their lives is being spent out here in the world. Well, people have to make their own decisions. I understand that. But my beloved, God's children can feel safe in the church. And I believe our children should be able to feel safe at home. You know, the home is a place that you shouldn't have to look over your shoulder because you're afraid somebody's going to mistreat you or abuse you. Home is a place where you can feel safe to speak your mind. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that's said is acceptable. You know, sometimes a child speaks his or her mind and you, as a parent, have to say, uh, hold the phone. <laughs> that's a little disrespectful. And uh, I know you have those thoughts, but every good car needs a good set of brakes, right? Everybody needs some breaks. So this isn't a place to just spew acid all over the rest of the family. You know, it's a place to be temperate, self-controlled, and you can say what you want to say, but think about how you want to say it. And the same is true for parents. If parents are self-controlled, they will develop kids that are self-controlled. But the point that I'm making, I mean, I'm chasing rabbits all over the place, but uh, the point that I'm making is that the church has an inward dimension. It's a home for God's little children in this world. Yes, it's a place of adoration and worship, but it's also here for God's people. Existing as a home away from home. I love Jeremiah's lament in chapter 9, verse 2 of Jeremiah. He says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a place, a refuge for wayfaring men. 
He feels like he's walking through the desert, through the wilderness. He said, I just wish I had a little place that I could find safety and asylum for a little while. I want to tell you, God's little children walking through the wilderness of this world have a place in the wilderness, a refuge for wayfaring men and women. You sing that song, I am a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm just a pilgrim in this world. I'm telling you, dear friends, there's an asylum, a place where you can find safety and refuge in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like an embassy. If you've ever traveled abroad, you know what a glorious sight the American embassy was. I mean, you've heard people speak languages that you were not familiar with, and you've uh, tried to read menus at restaurants that you couldn't interpret, and everything is unusual and unfamiliar, and may I say, to finally come to a place that flies your flag and speak, people speak your language, and they come from your home, you can get a hamburger, <laughs> You know, and you can uh, interact with folks that know your story. They sing your song. They're your people. That's what the church is in this world. It's a home away from home for God's people in this world. He says that the preaching gifts have been given for the perfecting of the saints to grow them up, little children to grow up to maturity for the work of the ministry. That is, you say, you mean God's given the gospel ministry so that they will have something to do for the work of their ministry? No. That phrase for the work of the ministry means God has given the preaching gifts, pastors and teachers, for the work of the saints' ministry. You see, I believe in every member ministry in the body of Christ. The church is not just one man's responsibility. It's not just, you say, well, that's why we pay you, preacher. That's why you have uh, the role, the position that you do is so that you can do all the work. Well, there's plenty of prayer and study in the Word of God and preaching and teaching the Word that is important. But may I say... There's no one person who can do everything that needs to be done in the life of a congregation. You know, when somebody calls up at the church and says, I need to speak to your youth pastor, and you answer the phone, you ought to be able to say, speaking. Or I want to speak to your singles minister, you ought to be able to say, speaking. Or may I speak to your senior minister, the one who takes care of the older crowd in the church, Say speaking, because our church should have as many ministers as we have names on the roll. Every one of us is called by God to help each other, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another daily as it is called today. The point that I make, my beloved, is that the church is here for God's people to minister to each other. And what a wonderful thing it is. You, I, you can't imagine how it cheers my heart when somebody tells me, Brother so-and-so called me. Sister so-and-so came by to see me. Look what she brought me. You know, I try to visit around. I try to see the shut-ins. And if somebody's in need, a special need, I try to make a point to go see them. Now, I try not to interfere. I know people have their own lives and privacy. And I don't just show up. Very seldom do I just show up saying, Well, I'm just making the rounds. And I've got things to do as well, but uh, the point is that it's wonderful to know how well this congregation looks after each other. I love you for that. I praise God for what you do for Christ in tending to each other and helping each other. You know, there are some who are no longer with us, and when they were alive, you know, I mean, there were like a half dozen folks who regularly ministered to them from our congregation. I didn't feel like it was all on my shoulders, and it's, it, I shouldn't have to feel like that. It's not. I can't do it all. But when every joint is supplying 
to the increase of the body, edifying itself in love. What a wonderful and delightful scene that is. Now the clock's about to beat me, so I need to get to the last point, the outward dimension. What is the master's plan for the church? Well, it's to function in an upward sense. We're here to worship him. It's to function in an inward sense. We're here for each other, for God's children. This is a refuge from the storms of life. Here you can find somebody that sings your song. These are my best friends. I love the hymn we sing. You may sing of the beauty of mountain and dale, one verse of which says, you may sing of the friendships of youth and of age. You may talk about the friends that you've known, the old boys you went to school with, or the girls you used to run around with, or the people that are your friends right now, secular friends, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the hymn writer says, but the friends that most cheer me on life's rugged road are the friends of my master, the children of God. You know, the church is not just a sanctified Kiwanis club. (laughs) It shouldn't be. It is a family affair. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Blessed be that tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. That's the inward dimension. Then there's an outward dimension. The church exists to proclaim the mystery of Christ to the watching world, to promote and advance the gospel. This is its evangelistic purpose. You see that in the previous chapter of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. Notice what he thought about himself. I'm not very important. I'm less than the least. It's not about me. Is this grace given? Notice what he thought about his ministry. He said, it's a grace. It's a gift. It's a privilege. It's it's something that I am so honored to do. It's a grace that God has given me. He's talking about his opportunity to preach. Unto me... I'm, I'm not important, but God has given me a great message. He says, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Notice what he thought of himself. He was underwhelmed by himself. Notice what he thought of his ministry. He was more impressed with the task before him. But notice what he thought of his subject. He said it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. He thought most highly of the theme of his preaching, Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm preaching. Wherever I have an opportunity, I'm going to tell people this old, old story. I love to tell it. And then he says, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. I want people to understand God's plan of the ages, his plan of salvation. In the book of Ephesians, references to the mystery has to do with God's plan of salvation, his eternal purpose, his plan of the ages. He says, I want people to see The fellowship of the mystery, how God's plan brings his people from all kindreds and nations and ethnicities into fellowship with each other, which from the beginning of the world, this mystery was hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, under the principalities and powers, now he says, I want everybody to see what God has done for poor sinners, and then he says, I even want the angels, the principalities and powers to watch to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, it might be known by the church. It might be made known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Do you know what this verse means? This verse means that the church exists to proclaim 
the mystery of Christ to the world and to showcase and exhibit God's manifold wisdom even before the angels in heaven. Now, we sing a song, angels now are hovering round us unperceived amid the throng. And I used to sing that and thought, it's, it's kind of, ooh, that's kind of, sends chills up my spine. Angels are here hovering. You say, ah, that's not true. It's just a mystical idea. Well, Paul says that the angels are watching. You know, Peter says, even the angels desire to look into those things that you see and understand. They're perplexed because they're not redeemed. Angels are creations of God, but they weren't participants in the redeeming work of Christ. So they never really understand how mortal men would be so favored by God. So they're perplexed by it. They want to understand more. But you see, Paul says the church showcases. We're making known the manifold wisdom of God even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. If you study Ephesians 3, Paul is teaching us in the first seven verses that we know a secret. That's the reference to the mystery. We know a secret. Verses 8 through 10, he says, now let's tell the secret. The church is not to keep the message clandestine and hidden and obscured, but we know a secret. We know something the rest of the world doesn't know. And my friends, let's tell it. Let's make it known, even to the point that the angels are aware of the manifold wisdom of God. Now, you could see God's manifold wisdom in natural creation. It's all around us. But my beloved, his manifold wisdom in redemption is even more glorious. The fact that he fashioned a scheme of salvation that was so perfect and so divine and so fail-proof that it guarantees the salvation of every one of the objects of his love. My beloved, only a wise God could do that. Manifold wisdom, and we are proclaiming that message to the watching world. And therefore, we want God's children out here in the world to come to believe it and to confess it and to unite with the church. Matthew 28, 19, he says, go into all the world and teach all nations. That word teach means disciple. Disciple. He didn't say go help me populate heaven. He says you go find my children and make followers. The purpose of the church is not redemptive, but it is pastoral. The purpose of the church, my friends, is also evangelistic. It's to proclaim the good news and to call for God's children who are not yet a part of the gospel fold to come in and take their place in the service of the church of the Lord in the kingdom of God. When a church functions according to this master plan, May I say it's a lovely scene, as verse 16 again indicates of chapter 4. And you think about the many places in the Psalms where he says, beautiful for situation. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. At the Lord's house, he says, is amiable. How amiable, how lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. Or think about Psalm 87.3, where he says that his foundation is in the holy mountains, Glorious things are spoken of the old city of God when the church is functioning the way the Lord intended for it to function, upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. It is a lovely thing to see in this world. May God bless our church to function that way, to tailor its function, its daily activities and approach to the master's plan, the architect's blueprint for how a church is supposed to work. 
Jesus, they will feast eternally. 